Welcome back to The Rhetorical Situation, a podcast brought to you by the Rhetoric and Writing Studies Department at San Diego State University. I'm Rachel Michelle Fernandez. And I'm Nicole Golden. If this is your first time listening, Rachel and I have just completed our first of two years in the RWS graduate program. Yes, we have. In this series of four short episodes, we're hearing stories from faculty, students, alumni, and more about their experiences living through this last year and how the RWS program has influenced their lives and careers. In this episode, we talk to one of our busiest lecturers and the self-titled adopted child of the RWS department, Emily Whitworth. We checked in with Emily about her experience helping create mentorship opportunities for writing students and how she came to be a part of the Frederick program. We also caught up with one of the first tutors from our writing center, a linguist who went on to use his skills to build writing centers overseas and also happens to be obsessed with comic books. Let's get started with meeting Emily. I am Emily Whitworth. I am a lecturer here in the RWS department. I have been with the program um, as a lecturer for over 10 years. Originally hailing from Eastern Washington, Emily came to graduate school at SDSU as an English major with an eventual emphasis in rhetoric. RWS quickly got a hold of her talents, however, and kind of never let go. I really got involved from the get-go because I do like being a part of communities, especially communities of change, um, which I see our work as as that. I've held a couple different uh, positions in the department over my time here. I was the assistant coordinator of the scheduling. That's not what it's called. (laughs) Assistant (laughs) scheduling coordinator. Um, (laughs) Assistant scheduling coordinator. And I've worked on a lot of different committees, like the WPA committee, and um, now the Digital Outreach Volunteers, and the 105 Stretch Program committees. So I kind of have a role in as much as I can. Having worn so many hats in the department, we asked her how she gravitated towards rhetoric in the first place, and what helped her decide to become a teacher. I didn't know that there was a department called rhetoric and writing studies um i just knew about english departments and i kind of followed in the footsteps of my oldest brother who was going to grad school at wsu for an english degree and he started TAing up there and so he and i started talking about teaching a lot um and kind of collaborating on on what a good pedagogy would look like and you know having fun with lesson plans and stuff and i all of a sudden realized I really enjoyed it. And I started thinking about my experiences with instructors in college and thought, Mm -hmm. I could do a better job than that. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Or, you know, I was inspired by the people who did do a good job too. Um, But particularly with the influence of ethnic studies, I kind of left college with this thirst for a more inclusive classroom experience. And so I, unlike a lot of people, I went to graduate school in the English department with the sole focus of teaching at the college level or the community college level. Um, I I think my original goal was to teach at a community college. And so when I found, when I found myself at state and realized that there was an emphasis 
in one of the tracks for pedagogy um, and teaching practices. And that's where I would be doing my teaching and that's where I could be a tutor. Um, I kind of just fell in love with the department. So I always called myself, you know, the, the stepchild or the adopted child of the RWS program because I technically, <laughs> everyone thinks that my degree is in RWS, but it is not. I was an English mm. master's student. Um, so that kind of changed my route. I did and do teach at the community college level, but um, I found a home here in this department and realized I could do a lot of the work that I wanted to do at the community college in this this department as well. So that's how I ended up here. Despite her love for the program and how it felt like home, it took Emily a few years after earning her master's to start teaching in the program. When I graduated, it was 2010, so it was a little bit, we were kind of coming out of the recession or in the middle of this recession, I couldn't remember. So I think I was able to dabble in some classes in our department for a couple years. But mm-hmm. I really was full-time at, um, I worked at, I believe, three different community colleges. I was what you would call a f- freeway flyer. Yeah, was, this, God, San Diego is just like a big, giant web of freeways, right? Yeah, I was living in Ocean Beach, and I would drive to Otay Mesa, um, downtown, and Cuyamaca. Um, so I was mm-hmm. all over the place. So I did spend um, several years very much ingrained in the community college um, experience, and I do still teach at San Diego City College, uh, just one okay. class, but I, uh, but I do That's still nice. teach there. Nicole and I shared with Emily that we're looking forward to being TAs in person during the fall, and I think she got a bit nostalgic. I know Nicole just started uh, TAing this semester, mm-hmm. and I can't wait to start next semester. I, I feel like... I'm so interested in seeing what these students are like when they first get to school. Oh, it's you know? so much fun. And honestly, <laughs> being a TA was probably, it was, it was the beginning, you know, the, my first experience was the best experience, I think, because you only have, um, I think at the time I had 25 students and I had one class and then I had two classes, so max out at 50 students. Um, so you can really pour your heart and soul into the class. Um, Mm. and that was so lovely and such a luxury that you just can't do when you have 150 students. Um, I mean, you, you can still, you still should try, but (laughs) But it's harder, much harder. It's much harder. And especially if you're going to different schools and you're doing different levels and doing everything, Mm -hmm. it just, when Mm -hmm. you can just focus on one group of students and really get to know them. Um, it's, it's a really beautiful experience. Most, most right. of the time. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right now I wow. think they cap the TA courses at 19 students. So yes. yeah. I think compared to 25, 25 is doable, but as a first year TA, I'm very appreciative. I only have 18 students. Oh, um, yeah. So I really can, I really can focus on like each individual student. And to me, they are all people they're not just like faces on a computer screen because I do have that time to dedicate to each student so exactly. I'm enjoying it. although well, have you actually have you actually seen all their faces yet Nicole or is it still I've a seen, lot of black screens I've seen many of their faces but some will remain elusive until the end I think <laughs> <laughs> which is yeah, so do, weird do thing my thesis, yeah. uh, my thesis was actually called um, "Breaking Down the Wall," and I used another brick in the wall from Pink Floyd as inspiration, and that music video oh. as inspiration of just not, you know, the whole idea is is humanizing the classroom experience and mm-hmm. seeing mm-hmm. you know your students as people. 
But also I realized that my focus kind of is is also on the students being able to see you as an instructor as human, and that's hard. I try to see what's going on in their lives, and so I let them into my lives to kind of share, right. you know, build trust. But And most students respond really well to that, but there are always a few who want me to remain in kind of my ivory tower and just be like, no, you stay up there <laughs> right. um, being a professional. And I'm like, no, I want to talk to you about life. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very Frarian thing. I, Frere was the other big foundation of my thesis that it is yeah. everyone's student teachers and teacher students, and mm-hmm. um, and again, there's there's limits to that 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 have to you have to be aware of. I mean, because the thing is, you are in a position of authority. You do have more experience of, than them in this discipline, anyway. Um, but I do think it's important to see people as whole human beings and the competing factors on that human being. And I want them to see me that way as, as well. I want to reclaim my humanity in the, in the classroom um, and be an advocate for the things that I face. You know, like, for example, I'm very open in my classes. I mean, I don't just come out and say it, but I'm very open about mental health struggles and things like that because um, I right. want to model that you can talk about these things appropriately, academically, um, you know, openly. Yeah, I feel that for sure. I definitely think uh, that's part of ending the stigma around it is, uh, you know, when you come out about that stuff, it's like, a, it's when every time somebody tells me that they also have, <clears throat> you know, a mood disorder or something, I'm like, really? You know, it's just, it's so like... Uh, <laughs> It's like it's like I don't wish that on anyone, but at the same time, it's nice to have. You're like, yay! <laughs> right. Like I'm not alone, you know. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's not. It's building. It's building community and sharing our stories, and I think that that's the first step towards empowerment and to ending stigmas and stuff. Is is the sharing of story. Emily is clearly very passionate about the connections students and educators foster. We were curious if this striving for connection is what led her to become involved with the RWS Mentors Program, previously known as the Fellows Program. The Fellows Program has gone through many iterations and will continue to. Um, when I was a grad student, it was just the RWS tutors, I believe, um, under the leadership of Michael Underwood, another one of our lecturers. And uh, he, I really, I consider Michael Underwood a, a mentor for me uh, because as soon as I got employment with the tutoring program, um, you know, he, he really showed how wonderful an experience it can be. And that really helped me succeed in the department. And then I helped, I helped him out in a lot of different ways, not just like doing the tutoring for classes but for like administrative I started helping him with some administrative um, tasks as well Um, like helping lead orientations and you know coming up with kind of worksheets and stuff like that for the tutors. Once Emily became a lecturer herself she took a step back from the then titled fellows program but in the process became a mentor herself to some of the writing fellows. Then around 2017 Emily was hired on in a more official capacity as an assistant coordinator for the program. She also had a child around that time. <laughs> the, the, the years all. It all happened right when... My daughter was born in 2017, so it must have been 2017, because I remember being in an interview with a fellow with my newborn child at my, in my arms. 
Well, that was a big year then, too, because then that's like Trump was elected. There's like a lot going on. Oh, Women's yeah. Marches, no, it was like, a ah. big. I don't. Jamie Madden was telling me um, in 2018, I taught a summer course. And I was like, how is that? Po- I still don't know how it was. Po- what I did in 2018 because I had a one year old child and was, you know, didn't have child care. So. And was the assistant coordinator of the fellows. So I have no idea. She's and it's on the computer. She's correct, but I don't have any recollection of how that happened. <laughs> it's a blur. Since Rachel and I chatted with Emily near the end of the semester, the Writing Fellows program has welcomed a new program coordinator, Leah Baker, and is changing names. Emily spoke about why she values this name change as a useful rebranding that more accurately shows off the program's purpose. I think the ch- name originally changed from tutors because there's so many different types of tutors on, on campus. Um, there's the writing center tutors, there's the athletic tutors, and we wanted to distinguish who we were a little bit more. Um, I think writing mentors is going to better represent what we do. Um, I think people are very confused by the term fellows sometimes, like what does that even mean? Um, people people call it their fellowship, it's, it's not that. Um, so we want to see ourselves as mentors to the students that we work with, but we also want to see ourselves being mentored um, by the instructor. So, you know, it's, it's a kind of a mentorship program all around. The tutors or the writing mentors are their peers, you know, to an extent of the students that they work with, you know, because they are students mm-hmm. too. And so they are often less intimidating. There, there is a lot of, again, that goes back to the humanizing the classroom. And we still right. have these, these divisions between like, oh, that's the instructor. Oh my gosh, I'm scared of that person. And so if it's kind of a baby step, but hopefully like what Leah um, says this a lot, that if we do our jobs right as writing mentors, then we're, we're working ourselves out of a job because we want to empower the students to feel comfortable to talk to the instructors on their own. Emily thinks back to when she was an undergrad student and the opportunities she may have missed because she was too intimidated to approach her instructors. I never went to office hours. I never talked to my instructors. I just, you know, was kind of a face in a crowd and and I didn't have any connections. And as a grad student, I realized what opportunities I missed out on because I didn't build relationships with my instructors. And, and I think that, 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 that baby step and that bridge that the mentor, the writing mentor can be helps, you know, kind of take that pressure off a little bit. And like, they see him somewhat as an authority figure, but somewhat as, as, as a peer and they can advocate for the things that the instructor is saying. Um, and, and you're right too, that the instructor can learn so much from their mentee because they are getting insight that the students might not you know, be as forthcoming with. (laughs) A big part of why Emily has been an advocate for facilitating these kinds of connections is how much it can alter understandings of the process of learning to write and make the process more transparent for students. I think there's so much destigmatizing of the writing process that needs to happen. People have this idea that they sit down at their computer, they have this blank white screen staring at them, and then they're supposed to just like vomit brilliance onto the page and then walk away (laughs) because we all know as writers that it's not just for you know struggling writers of course struggling writers like I think we'll see the most improvement 
but even strong writers, I always tell my students, I'm like, what I do when I write is I get on the phone with my best friend and I'm like, Hey, listen to this sentence. No, it doesn't make any sense. Okay. <laughs> I will rewrite yeah. that then, <laughs> you know, and we need sounding boards and, and we need, you know, collaboration to, to make sure we have an audience that understands mm-hmm. us. And so, um, I think that's the greatest thing that the writing mentors can do is just model that process. And that this isn't, this doesn't mean you're a bad writer because you have to go to a, a tutor or anything like that. It just means that this is how we write. This is how people engage in the absolutely exciting <laughs> activity that is writing. With Emily's wealth of experience as both an instructor and staff member for the department in mind, we asked her what advice she might give to students. So I think especially in undergrad, students get caught up just like they did in high school of like, oh, is it cool to be the person asking questions? You know, I don't want to be that annoying student in class. And my advice is be the annoying student in class. Take yeah. take the lessons that you need. Ask the questions that you want to ask. Um, bug your instructors and don't worry about whether people, I mean, you should worry a little bit whether people like you, you know, don't be rude. <laughs> but I mean, you know, that's the biggest piece of advice I would bring to students is, is, is ownership and, and action in your education because, you know, it, that's the one thing I will never, even though I'm in obscene amount of debt, um, I will never regret my education. Emily's passion for education and for writing is so awesome and one of the reasons why the RWS department is so valuable to students. Absolutely. Our next interviewee was also heavily motivated by education and RWS, despite his different major. I was, so I did my bachelor's in, in linguistics there at STSU and, in, and uh, towards the end of my bachelor's I started teaching as a tutor for the writing department, for the rhetoric department. That's Hassan Ottman, an SDSU alum and former rapper who is currently completing his PhD in education, curriculum, and instruction with a focus on ethnic studies at Northern Arizona University. I never graduated high school. So I never graduated high school. I don't have a, I don't have a GED. I don't have a high school diploma or anything like that. And I'm currently, I'm completing my PhD. So I, so it's, it's been a very strange ride. Hassan is a great example of how rhetoric and writing studies can intersect with different departments. Although he completed his master's at SDSU in linguistics, his work in the department and as a tutor in the writing center ended up leading him down quite a fascinating path. He was hired to help build a satellite SDSU campus in the Republic of Georgia, and he even spearheaded the development of a language center based on our very own writing center here in San Diego. But before we get to that story, I think it's important to talk about how Hassan's path came to intersect with the rhetoric department to begin with. His love of comic books, which was very apparent when we spoke to him over Zoom. Yeah, so you look like you're, you've got some superhero uh, uh Let's see, fet- fetish? No, I'm just kidding. I wouldn't say fetish, but <laughs> what's going on there with all the superheroes? So I've been reading comic books uh, for 42, three years. Um, uh, when, I was a, when I was a kid, um, there was a neighborhood bully. And, and uh, I grew up in, in the ghetto of San Diego. And the kid, 
was harassing me because I was trying to talk to his girlfriend, which was weird. <laughs> he was a lot older than I was too. And so he told me that he wanted to fight me. Um, and I was, he was seeing me in the street, so I avoided him, right? And then one day he told me to come to his house. And I'm like, oh, no, uh, he really wants to beat me up. <laughs> so I figured I, could, right. I figured I could get beat up in the street or I could go to his house. So I went to his house, and he, he took me to the garage. And I was like, oh, no, it's really going to be a bad beating in the garage. And, and instead of punching me, he put out a long white box of comic books. And he gave me a comic book. He gave me um, X-Men, God Loves, Men Kills. And, I, and, I, and he said, so I'm going to read it. And I, I didn't know what comic books were. I was like, what is this nonsense? And I took it home and I read it. And the X-Men, I related to them because I was a, a black kid in, in Southeast San Diego in the, in the hood. And the X-Men were mutants. And they were, they were hated by society, misunderstood. And I felt the same way. And so I really related to the X-Men. And I came back like within a day and asked for more. And he gave me more. And then he had a friend that was into anime and to Ninja Turtles and stuff like that. And so he gave me those kind of comic books. And so that's how I got started. Like years ago. It was actually his deep love of comic books and superheroes that helped Hassan earn his position in the writing center at SDSU. It just so happened that the person who interviewed him was also a comic book nerd and their office was covered in superhero posters. I got so I got the job because I went to for an interview for the tutor and instead of talking about tutoring we talked about the posters on the wall <laughs> and, I, and i got a job as a tutor which led me to the job in the writing center when they were uh, suzanne, and, suzanne and julie were building the writing center and so wow. i was the first one of the first well the first me and a couple people were the first writing tutors in the writing center, writing center after working in the writing center and teaching for rws while earning his master's in linguistics hassan presented his thesis one of the attendees was so impressed that she approached hassan afterwards she was like, that was an excellent uh, presentation. If there's anything I can do for you, let me know. And so I said, I need a job, just like laughing, you know, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> 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 if there's anything I can do for you, you're like, yes, hire me. Yeah, I, exactly. I need a job. <laughs> exactly. And so I, I, I applied for the, and then she told me about the Republic of Georgia. Their SDS, San Diego State University was building a university in the Republic of Georgia. And, yeah, and so she, I applied for the job. I got the job. And she, and she also took my um, ex-girlfriend with me, so she took, who taught at the, in the program also, too, so she took both of us. Wow. <laughs> we, uh, we helped build the San Diego State University of Georgia, and then when I talked to the, um, her about the language center experience, she was like, well, we could build a language center here, and I talked to the dean, Ken Walsh, and so Ken Walsh um, helped me build the English Language Development Center um, based off of the blueprint of the, the writing center at SDSU. And so I built my own language center there. That's still in operation, by the way. Like, uh, it's That's crazy. <laughs> wow. Hassan was even able to incorporate his love of comic books into the language center he built. And so I built it from the ground up and I designed it with Neil Gaiman stuff. So in the language center, there's all of the endless from the Sandman and there's all kinds of quotes from different writers all over the language center. And so it's actually kind of cool. <laughs> Soon after he completed the English Language Development Center in Georgia, a school in Azerbaijan heard of Hassan's accomplishments and hired him to do similar work, which then led to yet another opportunity overseas. <laughs> yeah, I had a job in Northern Cyprus for a month and a half, and I had a, a, a condo on the beach on the Mediterranean, like, which is super awesome, warm water, wow. awesome, all because of the job I did in, in Azerbaijan. I learned along the way that it's word of mouth uh, more than anything else, really. I mean, you gotta have the qualification, but word of mouth gets you into the, into the door. Right. 
Many of Hassan's stories seem to center on a certain level of serendipity mixed with perseverance. For instance, in a somewhat similar fashion to how he came upon comic books, Hassan also arrived at studying linguistics in a very roundabout way. <laughs> yeah, strangely, strangely enough, I got into the linguistics because I was at a party back when I was a rapper. I was doing a show at UC Santa Barbara and it was a really cute girl and I walked up to the girl and I was trying to make talking <laughs> of her and she was like, well, what, what, what's your major? And I was like, linguistics. No, she's no sorry. She said, I asked her what I made. Well, she said linguistics, and I said mine too. <laughs> not even a little bit. And so when I finally, and so at 35 years old, when I finally decided to go back to school, I took community college, and everyone kept asking, "What's your major?" And I said linguistics, and I didn't know what it was. But neither did they. It wasn't until Hassan transferred to SDSU that he discovered what studying linguistics actually entailed. So I sit in the classroom with these people and they're like, language is my passion. I've always wanted to be a linguist. And I laughed at myself because it was just some girl I saw at a party who I thought was cute. And I wanted her phone number. Wow. Probably, and you don't you don't stay in touch with that person probably, right? Actually I do. Now she's a woman at Stanford, yeah. So she works at Stanford now. Her name is Patricia Gwinnadine, but she works at Stanford. So you know That's amazing. <laughs> I know she, story. she works at Stanford now. <laughs> I would have had a were, job. <laughs> were you like Thank you for putting me on this path and for being I cute. I, so I think every so every birthday, I thank Anne for giving me the comic books, and I thank her for telling me about linguistics or even mentioning the word linguistics because it worked out. Because I was a rapper anyway, so I worked with language, doing shows, right. and stuff. Right. Uh, you know. So hey, it works out. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Hassan also sees a lot of crossover between linguistics and rhetoric, especially when it comes to writing centers and writing instruction. So uh, linguists look at how language works. And so with applied linguistics, um, uh, or any linguistics really, you're studying language. And so you can have an answer for a student that's an ESL student when they come to you and say, I don't understand why English does this or why this. Or you can understand how their language, um, right. their L1 interrupts their second language. So for example, if someone speaks Cantonese or Mandarin, which we call Chinese, there's no verb conjugation. And so for mm -hmm. them, um, what they say like, I go to store, yesterday today and they add a ad, they add an adverb to, do, to say the time but for us we use tense and so for them it might be very difficult to switch and they also have four tones and so the four tones doesn't translate right. english either and so that's why it's so hard for us to learn that language but as a as a, if you take apply linguist linguistics and you teach academic writing when you see people making errors in their paper you'll know that it's not just something that they're not they're not just not like not smart you know this that their language is interfering with it so for another, absolutely. Yeah, another example would be Spanish. So for example, Spanish doesn't allow for consonant clusters um, more than three. So you always have to have a vowel. And so when you talk to someone who's, who's fluent in Spanish, they often say things like especial or school because you can't have the S-C-H by itself because three consonants right. are allowed. Right, escuela is, right, exactly. exactly. Yeah, that's even, the, yeah, even the real language is, is formatted that way. So it's yeah. kind of cool. So, and so when someone, so typically back in the past, when someone's speaking Spanish or they're writing and they, they make those kinds of mistakes, teachers who were not informed were hostile toward those students and or, you know, are frustrated. But as a linguist, I find ways to circumvent that because I understand the mechanics of it all. That it's not a mistake. It's their first language that's actually interfering. Currently, Hassan's dissertation focuses on the language of hip-hop-based education in African-American vernacular, as he examines potential differing meanings and the history behind the N-word. So we, we have this term that's created called the N-word, that I'm sure you guys have heard written and said everywhere. But what's interesting about that term is that that term is, is it covers up a whole history of language, and it, and, and, it, and it seems to be applicable or applied to two different terms that appear to have two different meanings. So the word N-word covers 
um, for the word nigga and nigger, right? So I, as a, as a black person in general, and a person that's involved with hip hop, I know that the word with the A, nigga, is used as a term of kinship. And it's evolved past whatever racist roots that it might have had. But then the other ER, nigger, is not like that. And so right now, my current research is, is I'm, I'm actually surveying people. I got 700 people surveyed so far, um, which is a and I'm looking at what their opinions on, on the two words, if they have different meanings, if they're used different uh, syntactically, and if the N-word is, is okay to cover them up. Because to me, um, when someone created the N-word, because it wasn't a Black person that created the N-word, I'm pretty sure. Because the word N-word, while, we, while it's something we can use, but what it does, does two things. First, it makes it look like somebody is doing something about racism. So if you remove a word from the vocabulary of, of, of English and you can no longer say this word, then it looks like you've done something. But actually, no, actually occurred. It's just a cover-up. So we can say the N-word all day long, but we all know what it means. And then the second thing it does is it covers up the history of the word. So when somebody uses nigga versus nigger, you know where they're coming from. You know what stance they're taking. So a Black person, if I'm a Black person, I'm on college campus, and I turn to my Black friend, I go, what's up, nigga? Like, I'm talking to him as a friend, or even my white friend, or my Hispanic friend, or Asian friend. If I'm saying those things to them, I'm talking to him as a friend. They're involved with hip-hop, too. And sometimes and they would say it back to me. But now what if someone overheard that who's white or different or even black and they go complain to the university that we've now used ethnic slurs on campus and it can be or in class. And so some so that's why I'm using my research to try to um, uncover what's really happening on the streets. Are people using two separate words with two separate meanings? And is the N-word phrase a valid phrase to cover up both words? Now that Hassan's dissertation is nearing completion, we asked him what his goals are after he finishes his PhD. So I want. So my, my main goal is to find a job as a, as a full professor in a university, um, preferably in San Diego State University. <laughs> With all of Hassan's experiences at home and overseas, in hip hop and academia, we'd be more than lucky to have him as an instructor at SDSU. You hear that, SDSU? Hire this man. <laughs> In the meantime, we asked him what advice he'd offer to current students. Yeah, so the main thing I, uh, advice I can give is I learned it from Scrooge McDuck, actually, from DuckTales, is, uh, is uh, work, work smarter, not harder. I repeat, work smarter, not harder. Because I see a lot of people um, knocking themselves out. We're going we're gonna to memorize a thousand questions today for the big quiz. No, 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 you have to do all that. And also, you don't have to... You don't have to stress as much as people think it is. Academia is has very specific standards and things you have to turn in. And you do a good job on those things. But it's not like this incredible, incredibly hard thing. In fact, it's harder to actually sit in the office and do nothing with your life and stare at a computer screen for, and realize that your life has been wasted. That's much harder. <laughs> he also added that we should all aim to study abroad as much as possible. Um, because if you find a program that lets you go somewhere for a year, or six months, whatever, do that because studying abroad is an incredible experience, like incredible. I love hearing all the thoughtful advice from all our interviewees, but this advice might be my favorite. Yes, I'm actually going to look up any and all opportunities to study or work abroad right now. Well, maybe I'll finish doing this episode with you first. <laughs> That's so considerate of you. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you to all our listeners and supporters of the RWS department. In our next episode, we talk to two of our current graduate students about their unique paths navigating the world of higher education. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and check out all our other episodes from this second installment of The Rhetorical Situation. Until next time. Adios. Ciao. Ah.
How do you say goodbye in Japanese? Mm, formally, sayonara, but maybe for like an until next time. Jane. 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 It's like a casual goodbye.